This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Bradford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and good morning. It's great to be back with you. Uh, Many of you are enjoying this wonderful weather and winding down the vacation cycle here. Uh, Children are starting to get ready to go back to school, so um, time to start settling in. And as always, we love being with you here on this pleasant Saturday. Today's a good show because I really wanted to look forward to doing this. This is something we've talked about in the past on the show, and it's heat-related illness. And it's certainly getting warm out there, and our activity level is going up. So we're going to have Samantha Scarnio on. Uh, Samantha is the Director of Sports Safety at the Yukon Corey Stringer Institute. She's going to be here in the studio to talk to us a little bit about some of the causes of heat-related illness, exertional heat stroke, and what's being done about that, not just nationally and internationally, but here in the state of Connecticut. So we're going to have some uh, chatting with her. I'm going to give you the phone numbers now in case you have questions. I want to give them to you as we go through. If you're starting to think about your child going back to playing football or some other outdoor sport in this heat, um, the phone number is here. The call-in number is 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Also, if you're a little shy, don't want to call into the show, you can email me at info at alessimd.com. This day in medicine, August 19, 1603. It's an interesting one. This is the date for the dedication of Thomas Lodge's, Dr. Thomas Lodge's treatise on the plague. Now, Dr. Lodge uh, was an English physician who, much to the chagrin of his family, went into writing. But in his writings, he wrote this treatise on the plague. And basically... It was a public health publication, and basically he wanted to get the information out to those who were most needy in order to try and educate people about the plague, about illness. So just think about this. This is, you know, he passed away in 1625. So just to get a feel for all this, he really was one of these pioneers in public health and educating the public, which is what we do on this program. So today we salute Dr. Thomas Lodge. A lot of discussion on the topic of head injury. Uh, There was more in the news yesterday. We talked a little bit more, and my recent article in the Norwich Bulletin talked a little bit about CTE. Just to briefly recap, there was a study published several weeks ago on chronic traumatic encephalopathy in which they reported 99% of 110 deceased NFL players had evidence of CTE in their brains. The interesting part of that is they felt that the escalation in terms of the level of play in football brought with it more possibility to have CTE. 
Now, one of the problems with that is that there is selection bias to that. People who volunteered their brains probably had something wrong with them to start with. So there's a problem there. And there's the issue of association versus causation. Yes, I think we'll all say there is an association of CTE with the sport of football. But we do not have proof that the sport of football is a direct cause of CTE. And the reason I bring that up is many people are starting to try and make decisions as to what their children will play in sports this this year. That brings us to the study published yesterday by the Barrow Neurologic Institute and my colleague Javier Cardenas. And in his study, they took a, a survey of Arizona, really did a statewide survey, and they found that about 85% of people did not have a problem with their child playing a high-velocity collision sport. But only two-thirds of those people would let their children play football, as opposed to 90% of them allowing their children to play soccer or other sports. The reason I bring this up is because suddenly everybody thinks concussion and head injury is only related to football. It's not. Matter of fact, the more common area of concussion you're going to see is women's soccer. And the fastest growing has been, in my experience, over the last 10 years, has been cheer and dance. Yes, cheer and dance. See, in cheerleading, we have people who are the base, who form the base of the formation. And then we have the flyers. The flyers are these typically little girls who they throw in the air and sometimes catch. And that's why we see a lot in that area. So I want to give parents... Three things to think about when you're at a game now and you're watching athletes on the field, people always ask me, how do you pick up a concussion? How do you know somebody may have had a concussion? Well, first of all, you want to know that they've had any injury. So here are the three things I look for. First of all, an athlete that's slow to get up from the field, an athlete who may need some assistance getting up or getting back to the huddle or getting back to the play meaning another player coming not just to pick them up but to, to assist them. And then I look at their gait. If they have some staggering gait when getting back to the huddle or getting back to the sideline, you need to get that athlete off the field. And this is important not just for a doctor. It's for parents. It's for coaches. It's for referees and other officials to really be mindful that athletes may be injured. My next topic today was Express Scripts. This week, this came out. Express Scripts, the largest PBM, pharmacy benefit manager, who provide the mail order pharmacies, has decided that when it comes to opioids, they're only going to issue a seven-day script for the first script. And the feeling is that this will impact this opioid overdose epidemic that we're facing, the overdose epidemic that we're facing. Uh, I wish them luck with this. What the problem is, is we're getting mixed messages. Some messages say pain is the fifth vital sign. It's like your heart rate and your blood pressure. And physicians have to keep people out of pain. But by the same token, we want to tell you how to keep people out of pain. And on top of that, we want to not fund active research. Let me back up a little bit. 
first of all, we're trying to legislate responsibility. We're going to have to legislate to people how many narcotics you can take or not take or what you put in your body. Have a problem with that. The other thing is we've got some tremendous research being done in non-narcotic treatments for pain. Right here at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, they're looking at medical marijuana. But they couldn't get funding for that study. The physicians in the hospital fund the study themselves to look at the beneficial effect of oral marijuana versus an opioid medication. So before the press, before people in general start to demonize physicians over this opioid epidemic, you need to really take a good hard look at what the actual causes are. And it's not necessarily the doctor writing the prescription. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Samantha Scarnio, and we're going to be chatting about heat-related illnesses. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Tonight at Mohegan Sun, just a reminder that we will have Santana. And always gets a good crowd. I was there last night. The Connecticut Sun were playing. Uh, unfortunately, lost to the New York Liberty. But we'll be back again tomorrow, actually, in the afternoon. So quick turnaround. And the people at Mohegan just do such a great job in that arena. I got to I gotta give them a shout-out. I mean, so they have to take the basketball court apart last night, get all set up for Carlos Santana tonight. Then at 3 a.m., the crew comes back in to reset up basketball. I still find that phenomenal. But just keep in mind, if you get over to Mohegan Sun, great place. Entertainment, restaurants, um, they just do a phenomenal job over there. So on this part of the show, I have in the studio Samantha Scarnio. Uh, soon to be Dr. Scarnio, uh, is Director of Sports Safety at the UConn Corey Stringer Institute. And... Really, most of her work has been in the area of heat-related illness. Sam, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Let's chat a little bit um, and just bring us up to speed a little bit on when we talk about heat-related illness, what are we talking about? So heat-related illness is when athletes are participating in the heat and their body um, goes through what's called uncompensable heat stress or they their body temperature just continues to rise to the point that it gets to dangerous or critical levels. And if it's not recognized and treated properly quickly, then it can be fatal for some athletes. And we're seeing increased number of fatalities. I mean, we hear this periodically, especially in high school, and mm -hmm. we're hearing it more and more. I mean, we're hearing it about infants being left in a car. I mean, again, we're talking about a lot of different ways, but specifically we're talking about exertional heat stroke in athletes. Um, are we just becoming more mindful of it? Is that why we're seeing more of it? That's a really great question. I, I think over the years we've, we've published several position statements. We know what the gold standard is. We know how to evaluate heat stroke, exertional heat stroke, um, which there is a difference between exertional heat stroke and, and classic heat stroke. And I think just as, as time goes on and people are paying more and more attention to athlete safety, specifically at the high school level, that we're just noticing it more and that we're 
we're now trying to make more strides for it. For example, just a few weeks ago, there was an unfortunate death of a high school athlete in Florida, and that was from a um, non-regulated out of season high school conditioning session for football athletes. And unfortunately the athlete passed away from exertional heat stroke and there wasn't proper recognition of or care of that athlete at the time. And, you know, that's just one example of how we need to start to consider these things even more than we are right now. Let me back up a little bit. And I want to make people aware that the university of Connecticut is the national leader when it comes to the studies in exertional heat stroke. Thanks to your work and that of Dr. Casa um, at UConn. Can we talk a little bit about where you work? The Corey Stringer Institute um, has gotten a lot of press and it's something that's well known nationally uh, in athletics. Can we talk a little bit? Of, let's talk a little bit, bring everybody up to speed on what the Corey Stringer Institute is. Yeah, the Corey Stringer Institute um, is named after Corey Stringer, who is a Minnesota Viking, and he passed away in August of 2001 from exertional heat stroke. Um, to date, he is the only NFL player to die from um, exertional heat stroke or, you know, in the sport of football at all. And from that tragedy, Dr. Douglas Casa was one of the expert witnesses on the case. Um, and Corey's widow, Kelsey, asked if we could host the um, Corey Stringer Institute at the University of Connecticut. So our mission, and we've been around for um, about seven years now, is uh, advocacy, education, research, and um, overall awareness of not just exertional heat stroke, but how to prevent sudden death in sport for athletes, warfighters, and laborers. And I always I find that interesting because we're hearing more and more about it, especially with what goes on in Iraq and Afghanistan, because we're fighting in heat, warmer climates. Um, what's the key for this? Because Many of the people, many of the warfighters, many of the laborers, as we talk about, are not necessarily acclimated to heat. How, how do you get around that? How do you take somebody who may not have grown up in that environment and now put them in that environment and expect them to perform? So heat acclimatization is the gradually phasing in of exercise in the heat over a period of time. Um the research shows that seven to 14 or 10 to 14 days, excuse me, is really beneficial for the body for several different reasons. Um, your heart rate will decrease, your core body temperature um, will be able to uh, mitigate or, or reduce itself, um, your sweat rate increases. And through that period of time, especially with you know football players or athletes that wear a lot of equipment or soldiers, or even laborers, you want to gradually phase in equipment as well. So you don't want to start off on day one with all pads, hitting dummies, like, you know, going hard. Um, you want to gradually phase in not just the intensity of the exercise, but the equipment that the athlete's wearing as well. When, when we're doing that with soldiers, do we have enough time to get them acclimated? Is that a policy now? I, I know that you guys affect a lot of policy and work with the military. Is that something that's policy now? I can't tell you for sure. Um, I mostly work with our athlete division at KSI, um, but we we do work with the military and we do help to um, influence, you know, proper recognition and treatment quickly. So I wouldn't, I'd be, have to get back to you on let's that. Get to, well, let's get to athletes. Uh, and that's what we wanted to talk about. Sudden death in athletes. I mean, that's that's what you look at. We always associate cardiac and neurologic. I mean, those are really the only two ways of dying. 
Um, but exertional heat stroke will cause both of those things. Yeah. Um, so that's why we included. I mean, <laughs> physiologically, we, we don't want to be little exertional heat stroke, but exertional heat stroke. But the one thing I find interesting is in in most of the cardiac and neurologic problems, those are unavoidable. Somebody gets hit in the head. Exertional heat stroke is a preventable problem. Am I correct? Yeah, but I'd actually argue that all four can be somewhat reduced in their occurrence regardless. And when I say all four, I mean the top four causes of sudden death in sport right now are cardiac issues, heat-related illness, so exertional heat stroke, head injuries, and then exertional sickle cell trait. And those four causes make up 60 or 90% of all high school-related fatalities. And I'd argue that all four of those are in some way preventable, whether it be through proper tackling for head injuries or making sure that you have an AED on site for cardiac, and then especially with exertional heat stroke, heat acclimatization, environmental monitoring, making sure that athletes are hydrated and understand the risks and um, uh, potential fatalities that come along with exertional heat stroke are are something that we can well, work I guess, together on. Yeah, like, <laughs> in terms of head injury, I, the other night I had to admit somebody who got hit with a baseball after pitching. So oh. um, those are not avoidable. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah. In, in even and even and some people get the impression, well, we could avoid concussion because we'll get a better helmet. No. And as we know, that's not the case. Correct. So by avoidable, I think you've already brought up the issue of acclimatization, okay, being number one. But the other thing is with the Corey Stringer Institute, if I'm correct, there was a lot of dehydration um, in in his specific incident. Uh, I think they were working out in a lot of heat and there wasn't all a lot of ready access to water. Can we talk a little bit about the importance of hydration in this situation? Yeah, I think in general, exertional heat stroke, you want to make sure that you have several different policies in place. And especially when it comes to hydration, coaches, athletes, parents want to make sure that all of the athletes have access to water whenever they want it or whenever they need it. So making sure there's hydration stations set up around the field, making sure that coaches are scheduling in hydration breaks um, and not just to get off the field and get water, but actually having a period of rest while they are off the field in order to, you know, bring their bring their temperature down, um, get them kind of back to normal and as much as you can in a short period of time and and proper hydration. It's interesting. We talked a little bit about policy. I'm chatting with Sam Scarnell, and and we're talking about um, basically the approach to heat related illness. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to get back and talk more about a study that she spearheaded in looking at policies around the country in terms of how are we going about protecting our athletes at the high school level from sudden death. This is something important for all parents to hear. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're back in for the second half of our show. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. I'm chatting with Sam Scarnio, and Ms. Scarnio is the Director of Sports Safety at the UConn Corey Stringer Institute. Sam, we're talking about policy. 
And what was interesting is your recent publication in which you rank high school sports safety policy rankings. And it's got a lot of notoriety. So let's chat a little bit about it. Tell us about the study. Yeah. So for the past three years, the Corey Stringer Institute, in collaboration with the National Athletic Trainers Association and AMSSM, um, American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, um, have put on a meeting called the Collaborative Solutions for Safety in Sport. And the goal of the meeting was to get the executive director and the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee members in the same room from all 50 states plus D.C. to talk about policy change. And from that meeting, um, the Corey Stringer Institute, uh, we decided that we needed to let people know what the states were doing from the policy level. So what we did is we went on all publicly available information uh, websites, so the state high school association websites, so such as the CIAC or the PIAA in, in Pennsylvania, across the entire nation plus D.C., and we looked at state legislation, and we looked to see whether or not these different um, avenues had policies in place for the four top causes of sudden death in sport, which I mentioned earlier are cardiac arrest, exertional heat stroke, head injuries, and um, exertional sickling. And we looked to see whether or not these states had policies in place that either required or mandated different or different parts of the rubric that we created. And then we gave them points, and then we totaled up all the points, and we ranked the states from 1 to 51. So the sad part here is that the state of Connecticut, the home of the Corey Stringer Institute, the home of the University of Connecticut, ranks 38 out of 50. Yeah. So that's pretty pathetic. How did they get – how did we get down that low here? So I first always want to start with a positive. The state of Connecticut, the CIAC, has great policies in place for heat acclimatization. They have all of the heat acclimatization policies that are recommended in the best practice documents, and they have um, done a great job of, of putting those into place for the athletes. So I want to applaud the CIAC for that. Where the CIAC and the state of Connecticut in general is lacking is environmental monitoring. So looking at the different temperatures outside that are on the field, what's the temperature, what's the humidity, what's the wind, et cetera, and making modifications or requiring modifications based off of what the environmental conditions are. Now, I know somebody's going to say, well, it can't be the same in the entire nation. Everybody, you know, 80 degrees in Connecticut is wicked hot. And then 80 degrees down in Georgia is a nice cool day for, for the athletes. So making regional modifications for the athletes um, and making modifications off of that. And the other place, the other place um, that Connecticut uh, can make improvements is emergency action plans. So emergency action plans are concrete written plans that dictate what should be done in the event of a catastrophic injury. So um, who's in charge of opening the gates? Who's in charge of calling 911, getting the AED, et cetera? And Connecticut, if we mandated policies in place for EAPs, emergency action plans, then everybody would be on the same page and all of our athletes would be safer and have better policies in place. It's, it's very interesting because <clears throat> – the emergency action plan is probably the most important thing a physician has in your kit when you're working at an event, um, and it changes with each event. 
it also changes when you go into certain dangerous situations. You always need an exit strategy. How am I getting that athlete out? How am I getting injured parties out in the case of a terrorist attack? Uh, I mean, th- an emergency action plan applies to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. What saddened me in our discussion was that not every school has an appropriate emergency action plan for every event. So it's different on a field as opposed to in a basketball court or in a weight room and things such as that. So I, I, I just find that overwhelming. But I've seen it at the professional level. I've seen professional athletes where there wasn't an effective emergency action plan. And we've both seen that on and on. Yeah. So I guess my point is what could parents be doing to push this forward? in terms of not just an emergency action plan, but one of my pet peeves as well has been that parents come to me, they're all hepped up. You know, every every young kid is going to be the next pro player. <coughs> Where should my child be going to school? Where should they be going to high school? You know, so that they're ready to get to the major leagues. And the only rule I give them is if when you go to that high school, you need to ask, do they have a full-time certified athletic trainer because that's what's going to keep your child healthy and it's going to keep your child performing so that if they have the God-given talent to get to the NBA or or NFL, they will get there. Where are we on both those things? Parents finding out if there's an emergency action plan and why don't we have certified athletic trainers mandatory at every high school? That's a great question. So to start off with athletic trainers, I am an athletic trainer myself, so I am biased. But we, just as you're saying, just to reiterate it, we are the ones who are trained in the emergency care of you know sport-related injuries. And um, why every school does not have an athletic trainer is beyond me, besides the fact that when we ask people and we do research on it, people tell us two things. One is... Um, the financial burden. Athletic trainers, we are healthcare professionals, so we do need a salary. Um, and a lot of districts uh, are not able to provide the salary. And the second one is some people even think it's a liability to have an athletic trainer um, because if they have an athletic trainer- That's a new one to me. Yeah. So some some of the schools that we've been surveying in our um, most recent research that will be published in the next few months is that some schools are saying that if they have an athletic trainer, it means that they're admitting that sports need an appropriate healthcare professional and that having an athletic trainer might put them at higher risk. I thought I've heard everything. You oh, know, yeah. uh, basically, here's a basic rule for parents. If your high school cannot afford a certified athletic trainer, then they cannot afford to have a football team, period. That's a high-velocity collision sport that has a lot of injury associated with it if you cannot afford to have the proper health personnel there, shouldn't have the sport. Yep, I completely agree. And then for emergency action plans, emergency action plans are free. It just takes a little bit of time for people to sit down together and talk about what they need to put into place to make sure that they have that venue-specific emergency action plan that's posted everywhere. So for parents, when you're after you ask if the school has a certified athletic trainer, the second question could be, can you show me where the emergency action plan is for the gym? for the practice field, for the game field. And if they can't show you where that emergency action plan is, then how are you supposed to know how to help them in the event of an emergency? Ask them why they don't have a medical emergency action plan. Ask them why they don't have an emergency action plan 
in general and advocate for them to do research on emergency action plans and how to put them into place. You could always contact us at the Corey Stringer Institute um, for assistance with EAP implementation. If we take a step backward now, so parents, um, you know, what can they do? Uh, you know, it, we've we've gone through the legislation thing. Okay, with concussion, which I've found fairly useless, but all 50 states now have legislation regarding the treatment or what to do in the case of a concussion. I think we're making headway because it's education, education, education. And is that going to be the answer here? What what can parents do today who are listening, parents and grandparents, to avoid heat-related illness in their child? So first and foremost is to make sure that um, your school or your organization that your child is playing for has the policies in place for prevention. So heat acclimatization, environmental monitoring, and then also proper recognition and care, which is obtaining a core body temperature and making sure that there's cold water immersion tub to get the athlete's body temperature down. After you make sure that they have those three things in place, talking to your athletes about proper hydration, proper sleep, making sure that if they don't feel well or if they're sick, that they maybe don't practice that day or or take a step back and making sure that the athlete feels comfortable in talking to the coaches and the appropriate medical people or anybody around that if they don't feel well, that they need to come out and and sit down and making sure that the coaches understand that safety first and then wins and losses second. Uh, That's so important. And I think we get away from that. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and talk about kind of the practical application of some of the things Sam has talked to us about in terms of how do we put this all into practice? Because she's going to be doing that in a few hours in Falmouth, Massachusetts. So we'll chat a little bit about that. As always, you're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. For our last segment, we're back for the last segment here of Healthy Rounds. And uh, having so much fun actually chatting with Sam Scarnio about uh, heat-related illness, but kind of the practical aspect of it. So, Sam, tell everybody, like, what you do and what you and your team and the number of people are going to do tomorrow because this was just such an interesting story. Yeah, so we volunteer at the Falmouth Road Race, which is in Falmouth, Massachusetts. Um, It's about a seven-mile race. Um, It was originally developed as a race from one bar to another and uh really yeah (laughs) and so that it's like 7.1 or 7.3 miles i can never remember um so we help with the uh, medical volunteers so we have 40 people going down from ksi to falmouth um some left yesterday some are leaving today some early tomorrow morning and we'll have some people in the medical tent, and we'll have some people doing research, which the Falmouth Road Race um, allows us to do research on their participants, which has been awesome from an educational standpoint for us. But then we also treat heat strokes. So we average probably 20 to 25 heat strokes a year. Two years ago, um, it was wicked hot. And yes, I went heat to Heat stroke being? Exertional heat stroke. Uh, what, te- what body temperature? Over 105 degrees. Okay. So two years ago, we had about 45 people who were over 105 degrees and over 65 people who were exertional heat exhaustion, which is between 101, 104, 105. 
So the way that the Falmouth Road Race works is that the athletes um, are triaged from the uh, finish line. They get brought in by medical volunteers to our triage center. We um, do a core body temperature, and then if they're over 105, we put them into a cold tub. We cool them down to 102, take them out of the now cold tell tub. them what the cool tub is, because yeah. it, it, and it's so it's so basic, okay? It's not something fancy. Oh, no. It's a big tub with water and ice. Like you'd mix cement in, yep. okay? Those basic plastic we, tubs you get. We've used kiddie pools before as a cold tub. We've used garbage cans as a cold tub. Anything that will be a vessel to hold water and ice to get somebody's body temperature down as fast as possible can be used as a cold tub. So, you know, it reminds me of, you know, my work at ringside because we have people doing damage to each other and and we get to learn a lot from that. So have the people at the Falmouth Road Race, not that I want to give them any suggestion, they thought to maybe move this race to the fall. I mean, it would be terrible for your research, but it, it seems like, I mean, when you talk about 45 people with exertional heat stroke and temperature over 105 you got to start rethinking what you're doing, right? Yeah. So they the race used to start later in the day. It used to start 12, 1 o'clock, and now it starts closer to 8 o'clock. So they've done that. But I, I want to give them credit because the race the race medical directors, Dr. John Jardine and Dr. Um, Dr. Davis um, and Chris Chianos, who's the medical coordinator out there, um, in – we, ha- we have a publication that's that's out, and in 276 cases of exertional heat stroke, we had 100% survival. So that means that every single athlete who came in with exertional heat stroke survived with proper recognition and care. So I'm sure they have considered whether or not they can change it to another day. I don't want to speak on behalf of the, the race by any means, but 100% survival with proper recognition and care, I, I, I don't know how you could beat that. Well, how did they... Had to get from running from one bar to another, okay, probably in air conditioning, um, to brutalizing themselves. But let me go back a little bit. How much damage? So we like the idea of people going out and doing a road race. I mean, it's a great thing, okay, because you've trained, you've become fit. How much damage are we doing at a cellular level by submitting, subjecting our bodies to a temperature of over 105 degrees? So cell damage starts to happen after 105 degrees. And if you can cool the body within 30 minutes of that um, temperature being elevated, then you can effectively not have any cell damage at all. So that's why cooling the body within 30 minutes is great. Anything after 30 minutes, I don't want to get too sciencey with it all, but it's pretty much um, things in your body start to, to break and your cells start to leak out and toxins go everywhere and that can lead to a cascade of events um, that can be fatal. So it's very important to get the body temperature down from 105 or higher, um, down as fast as you can back to normal. But in general, are people going out there, even if they don't get exertional heat stroke, okay, body temperature is going up, are they hurting themselves to some degree? I mean, are they taking, are they diminishing some of the benefit they could have, even if they're, I mean, they're going to have symptoms, but they're not going to have exertional heat stroke or even heat-related illness. They're just getting their body temperature up and running in an extreme condition. Should they be doing that voluntarily? I think uh, it's important for athletes to know their body and know that if they're getting too hot to to take a step down um, – but that's part of the thing that we don't understand with exertional heat stroke is we don't know how much damage is done to people who are not at those criti- critical levels. 
So I can't really tell you whether or not those people are actually you know, putting themselves in more harm's way, um, or maybe that rise in temperature may be beneficial for them in the long run. Fair enough. Every Everybody out there, every athlete out there is starting to take supplements, okay? They got some kind of shake, some kind of supplement going. Um, we've dealt with this with creatine for years, things like that. Are there any supplements that we know of that predispose people to exertional heat stroke that they should be avoiding or um, any medications they should be avoiding from that standpoint? I don't know the answer for that off the top of my head. Um, my research really focuses on the policy part okay. of it. So I'd have to defer you to some of I'm my colleagues yeah, for no exactly problem. those It's answers. just It's a curiosity that came up to me um, because we have so many people doing this. All right, how do we change policy? Um, how do we get the state of Connecticut to get on board? Um, because obviously people are in denial and, you know, denial is more than just a river in Egypt. So how do we get these states on board? How do we take positive action here in Connecticut? So first we need to start considering sports related death as a public health issue. Public health issues have traditionally focused on disease, um, travel safety, et cetera. But we need to start considering sports medicine and specifically sport-related death as a public health issue. And from there, we can um, increase our education and advocacy efforts, um, doing things like this media show, this radio show to educate parents on um, the benefits of sports and physical activity, but also that you need to do it safely and that there are potential um, catastrophic risks with it. Um, at the local level within schools, from a research standpoint, we need to figure out what these schools are actually doing. So we know what the states are putting into place, but are the schools following these policies? Are they not? Are they exceeding them? What do, what are they doing at the school level? And then we need to start considering the schools as um, a community. So key stakeholders such as athletic administrators, um, facility managers, athletic directors, athletic trainers, parents, coaches, officials, principals, superintendents. We need to educate everybody on what needs to be happening at the school level with proper policies, emergency action plans, and then work together as a team to try to influence change that way. It's interesting because we've influenced change in the military, and I know that the numbers have gone down of heat-related illness in the military because there are such harsh penalties. Uh, but obviously it's hard instituting those uh, policies when it comes to high school. Um, how about younger athletes? Is it an age-related problem? Do we see people more vulnerable older in age or younger in age? Unfortunately, we don't have very good what's called epidemiology or the numbers at the youth level. So we have better epidemiology um, or statistics for high school athletes who are aged like 14 to 18 um, and collegiate and of course, of course professionally. But for the youth athlete, we don't fully know how many youths are getting exertional heat stroke, who survives, who has a fatal outcome. Um, so without knowing the numbers exactly, we can't know where we need to start or how to start. But I will say that youth organizations such as U.S. Lacrosse, um, USA Wrestling have been doing a great job of trying to implement safety standards for their athletes. USA Wrestling, just to give them quick um Quick praise, they implemented and mandated emergency action plans for all USA wrestling sanctioned events um, starting this year. And they worked with the Corey Stringer Institute to make an emergency action plan template that all of their sites fill in um, for every tournament and have implemented them from that. So, 
Sam, it's been great chatting with you. This is a great topic, and we want to keep up with your research and all the work that you folks do over at Corey Stringer Institute. Thanks for taking time with us today and, and really helping with what is clearly a public health problem. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to our studio producer. It's uh, Matt's been on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, we will be back again live with Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. Dr. Ratchford of the Ratchford Eye Center uh, will be on, and we're going to talk about a lot of the effects on the human eye, both with age and we have a solar eclipse. Everyone should be very careful about this solar eclipse. Uh, make sure if you want to look at it, have the proper eye protection. Um, if you don't want to look at it, that's fine. You could tell your grandchildren you were there. <laughs> Next up on WTIC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Just go to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy.